Hi everybody, it's Greg, and here's what's coming up in the Popping Collars feed for the month of July 2020. Popping Collars with me, Betsy, Liz, and Ricardo will feature a conversation about road trip pop culture, all those things that make you want to hop in the car, roll down the window, and turn up the radio. Our Going on 30 spinoff, where Betsy and I review the movies of 1989, continues this month with Field of Dreams, starring Kevin Costner and James Earl Jones. And we have two brand new shows premiering this month. The first is Take Two, where we invite a past guest of Popping Collars to come back and update their take on a piece of pop culture we discussed years ago. This month, our special guest is Eric Matoye, who will be returning to talk about The Wire. Also, later this month, past guest Shayna Watson and I will kick off a new show called The Sacred Six, where we do a six-month deep dive into various episodes of a pop culture series. The two of us will be kicking things off by discussing discrimination and diversity in six episodes of the original Star Trek television series. This month's episode will be Space Seed, featuring the origin of Khan. Thanks for listening, and keep those collars popped. My name's Greg. And I'm Betsy. And this is Going on 30, a popping collar side project where if we build it, they will come. But who are we talking about? Who are these pronouns about, Greg? (laughs) They are the movies that were nominated or should have been nominated for Best Picture 30 years ago this month. Looking at Field of Dreams. Oh, Oh, Lord. (laughs) I have just created something totally illogical. That's what I like about it. If you build it, he will come. Didn't say. I hate it when that happens. Me too. Who's hearing voices? Ray is. <laughs> I think I know what if you build it, he will come means. Ooh, why do I not think this is such a good thing? Daddy, there's a man out there in your lawn. Are you a ghost? What do you think? You look real to me. This is really interesting. You believed in the magic. It happened. Isn't that enough? Annie, it's more than that. I feel it as strongly as I've ever felt anything in my life. There's a reason. Go the distance. Did you hear the voice, too? Did you hear it? Go the distance. Yes. Our grave is dead. He died in 1972. Are you Moonlight Graham? No one's called me Moonlight Graham in 50 years. Unbelievable. It's more than that. It's perfect. You build a baseball field in the middle of nowhere, and you sit here and you stare at nothing. 
this field, this game. It's a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good. Hey, is this heaven? No. It's Iowa. Kevin Costner, Amy Madigan, James Earl Jones, Ray Liotta, Burt Lancaster. Sometimes, when you believe the impossible, the incredible comes true. Field of Dreams. I have a brief description of Field of Dreams. Would you like to hear it, Betsy? Yes, please. Iowa farmer Ray Kinsella is inspired by a voice he can't ignore to turn his ordinary cornfield into a magical baseball field. <laughs> and that's just and that's just the beginning of a quest that leads him to the reclusive activist Terrence Mann, the mysterious Doc Graham, and even the legendary shoeless Joe Jackson. I mean, did you put farmer in quotes? <laughs> We're making fun of him. Betsy, what is your history with Field so, of Dreams? I mean, this is another film used in youth group. Like, this is another youth groupy kind of film. Like, really? I mean, yeah, I could see some clips. It's about reconciliation. It's about forgiveness. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, this is, it's got some prime targets right mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. But because I can't for the life of me, I know I'd seen this movie. I remember really liking it. Yeah. Like, what was I really connecting to as a teenager in this movie? And maybe it's this idea of, you know, what genre is this movie? Is it a sci-fi movie? Yeah. Is it a drama? Is it a, I don't think it's a comedy. But, you know, that, like, what is happening here? And I think the supernaturalness, the fancifulness, the wonder of it, Maybe I am too jaded now in my 40s that I'm uh-huh. not connecting in the same way I would like to connect. And it seems like it's a lovely idea. But maybe I was able to get in that groove better at 14, 15 years old. You know, that's a great point when you're talking about what what genre of movie is this? Because it's often listed as one of the best sports movies or one of the best baseball right. movies of all time. There is hardly any baseball in this. It's it's but funny. it is like, <laughs> I mean, and I'm sure we're gonna get into this idea of American mythos and memory in this. Right. But it is it is though. And I'm so I'm looking at you, you're a baseball guy. Like what's your experience with this movie? Okay, so we finally hit a movie that I saw in theaters at the time that it was released. <laughs> finally. <laughs> After this is PG. This is this is very PG. Yeah. PG, you would have been able to see it as as a young boy. I was probably Gabby Hoffman's age or a little bit older. Okay, hold on. You were older than Karen. (laughs) I was older than Gabby Hoffman in this. Yes, you were. Quick aside on Gabby Hoffman, she has looked the same her entire life. She her face has never changed. She's amazing. (laughs) <laughs> she's amazing. She's such a great child actor. I mean, she's a great actress now, but yeah. she is just a standout as a kid. Pretty funny. Um, so, yeah. So I saw this movie in the theater. I remember going with my mom to see this movie. I actually have memories of watching this movie in the theater, generally around parts that probably would have confused me. I, I remember liking the movie. I also remember confusing this movie with Eight Men Out that would have come out around the same time. Yes. 
about the same issue. You're right. And so I remember when Ray Liotta came out of the corn, I was like, wait, I thought that was Charlie Sheen. That's not Charlie Sheen in this movie. (laughs) You've had a lot of actor issues with this movie so far. So (laughs) we can talk about that too. That's true. Okay. Hot takes about the movie. Betsy, do you want to kick us off? So I mentioned before, kind of looking at this movie as a way of, are we talking about making amends? Are we talking about forgiveness? Are we talking about healing? It feel, rings so hollow to have it really be about Shoeless Joe. Like that, it very, that very quickly becomes like, oh, this is a poor, poor stilt to be building this story upon, right? That it's all about helping out this poor baseball team. Right. You know, and, and, and that, I guess, what did they say? That Shoeless Joe, he he took the money. Because they all eight of them right. took the money, right? Right, But yeah. that he didn't, he didn't, they couldn't prove he did anything in the game. Right, because his his numbers were still solid numbers. Like, he still right. batted well, he still... So, so then I'm still looking at these other lovely actors who are playing these other guys, and I'm like, you guys threw this baseball game, you know? And it's that... <laughs> but then I'm like, well, okay, so what am I... If I'm looking past error... If I'm okay. trying to move past poor decisions, yeah. what what message does this film have for me about what forgiveness and making amends and all of those things look like, particularly when the people are gone? The people are gone, and we're talking about the past. Even Terrence Mann is dealing with the past. Like We're all just kind of dealing with the past, but trying to live into something new. And what would it look like if I had the opportunity to go back in mm-hmm. some way and deal with it? And does the movie offer enough to help you when you are not able to build a magical baseball field to have a, you know, catch with your dad? Mm-hmm. Does the movie offer enough to say, here's how you, here's a way back you might. And maybe that's what you're connecting with. There's like a piece missing from this movie because it sets up the fracture in their relationship in the opening narration. And then it's come back to a few times in the movie, but it's almost like, remember when we talked about in, um, oh, one of the movies that we talked about last year where we said, you know, this movie could have used a flashback mm. and that would have probably driven this home. This movie could have used the flashback to driven home like the rift, I think, between Ray and his dad. Because yeah, it's kind of lost. Time, I think it would have gotten confusing. I think it would have been too much because we're already bringing the past into the present. There's an interesting kind of interaction with the divine in this. Mm-hmm. And are we talking about God? Are we talking, you know, I love that, you know, that famous line, you know, I think it's in the top 30 movie lines. Hey, is this heaven? No. It's Iowa. And the kind of mystery of that, that they leave open enough, which is nice. Yeah, that we never see Terrence when he goes out and yeah. after he comes back. Like, we never get that. It also desperately made me want to have better surround sound in my home. Because what I remember about this is the score and the way it would hit that boom. You know, it really come in strong mm-hmm. in moments in the score that kind of like that hits you in the in the chest. Right. It's mm-hmm. kind of that heart center kind of noise. And I, I, I couldn't get it loud enough without disturbing other people. Yeah first note this is a really weird movie yes it's a really weird movie okay but i followed that up with two questions is it real or is it a dream because there are a lot of things in this movie that feel dreamlike Mm -hmm. 
And I get that we we take it at face value. It's movie. It's presenting this stuff to us like it's real. But there's so many things that's like just feel like a go with it kind of feel to it the way that like a dream does where it takes you down different avenues and it's like okay there's no logic to why i would be doing this but that's fine it's the dream it's what's happening now and it is i mean it is this movie is a fantasy well until timothy busfield shows up and is like what the hell are you people doing over here and then he pulls right. it back right. grounding anchor so, but but from a filmmaking perspective i kind of appreciate that if you're going to call your movie field of dreams Make your movie a dream, right? And it, it it seems like it accomplishes that. And so from that extent, I'm like, it's a weird movie, but if you just say, screw it, I'll go with it, like, it's fine. I also have a Timothy Busfield note, uh. which is nothing is more 80s than Timothy Busfield's beard. Yes. Just, he's a ginger. He's going for it. <laughs> I see you thirty something. Just when you <laughs> talk about the, when it's... you talk about the adult movies yeah. that your mom had, right? Yeah. That you you know want to watch the Tom Cruise movies. For me, it was like, what if I understood thirty something? I would yeah. be so old and mature. Yes, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, well, that's it. It's the thirty something, and mainly it's that I would always see the opening credits to thirty something before I had to go to bed. So like that, it just I never saw Timothy Busfield do anything. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But his beard just burns itself into your memory. And then finally, Kevin Costner is always Kevin Costner. He he's the same character in every movie, and I wonder how he gets away with it. He just gives you Kevin Costner, and if that's the character that you want, then that's why you cast cast him. Now hold on. Now, I did see some acting. He acts. He acts like Kevin Costner. <laughs> so I think one of my favorite... He is not who I've picked for best performance. But right. what, I, the, when I, what I like the best about him in this movie is actually some of his physicality. Mm-hmm. When, when, when Ray Liotta shows up as Shoeless Joe and he asks him to go out and pitch. And he's running around out there like he's a 12-year-old boy. Yeah. And you see just this very youthful physicality. Because he has to kind of have this, well, why not? Kind of like, he's basically like a large uh, golden retriever in this movie. Yeah. Like, you know, let's go. Let's go on the next adventure. Where are we going? Yeah. I don't know what consequences are. I mean, I, I, and I guess I should say this in that I don't, I'm trying not to put a value on this. I'm I'm trying not to say that Kevin Costner is a bad actor or that it's negative or anything. I'm just saying that we're going to see a lot of Kevin Costner over the next three years. So like he's going to show up in Dances with Wolves. He's going to show up in JFK. He's going to be this. He's he's going to be this character in those movies, too. You know, and that's it's just what you get when you get Kevin Costner, you get this character. Yeah. What is the best scene from the movie? I like when we are in Minnesota and we are researching Moonlight Graham, Uh, Doc Graham, when they show up at the newspaper and are there with the old lady at the newspaper and, and Terrence is really interviewing people at this point. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so when you wrote that, didn't you? And yes. And I looked up some of the kind of behind the scenes on the movie and that Moonlight Graham's a real person. Yeah. 
And so when they're in the bar, when Terrence is in the bar, because he's such the writer, right? He's interviewing people. He's interviewing people who knew the real Moonlight Graham. So like the story about the hats with the wife, all of that is real. All that is true stories. Those are real people. And like that, that, that moment of kind of touching a different time happening inside a movie that's trying to touch a different time. I thought I just found the real heart of the movie. Mm-hmm. Real genuineness in that moment. I really liked those scenes a lot. Like it's all about discovery in this. Yeah. Like you get a limited piece of information and then you have to go figure it out and and that's journalism and reporting and a lot of what terrence mann is doing and this is is that kind of like quest for the truth or quest for the story and i'm i'm as a as a former journalist and just as somebody who loves and collects stories that 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 just really spoke to me what about you I love the terrence going into the corn i know but i want to know what's out there I want to see it. But you're not invited. Not invited? What do you mean I'm not invited? That's my corn out there. You guys are guests in my corn. Right. No, wait. I have done everything I've been asked to do. I didn't understand it, but I've done it. And I haven't once asked what's in it for me. What are you saying, Ray? I'm saying what's in it for me. Is that why you did this? For you? I think you better stay here, Ray. Why? Ray, there was a reason they chose me, just as there was a reason they chose you in this field. Why? I gave an interview. What what interview? What are you talking about? The one about Ebbets Field, one that charged you up and sent you all the way to Boston to find me. You lied to me. Well, you were kidnapping me at the time, you big jerk. Well, you lied to me. You said your finger was a gun. Ray. Ray. Listen to me, Ray. Listen to me. There is something out there, Ray. And if I had the courage to go through with this, what a story it'll make. Shoeless Joe Jackson comes to Iowa. Harry's been invited to go out with the other players. How are you feeling, sweetheart? Stupid. Mm-hmm. You mean out? Yeah. Out. Far out. I like the setup to that scene, uh, which is Ray getting upset that he's not allowed to go into the court. I love that line that Ray Liotta has where he says, well, you're not invited. And he just says it like matter of factly. Like, I mean... Can we talk about Ray Liotta? I mean, like, Ray Liotta is another person who in a lot of movies is Ray Liotta. Can we we agree? But his, like, 10,000 mile stare, he's a little scary. Yeah. He's kind of attractive. And he, like, but he's just, like, I love the bluntness of how the character's written. Because it's, like, you're kind of a ghost. Mm-hmm. But we're writing you very much like no, that's not what's happening. Just so you know, like yeah, he feels more like a ghost than he does a person. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's you know, it's that kind of frustration of wait, I was the obedient servant. I did everything I was asked to do, and you're telling me that I can't go into the corner. Like you know, yeah. that kind of you owe it to me because I did the work. 
the end of that scene too, where Terrence actually finally does go into the corn and the joy on James Earl Jones face Mm -hmm. as he's disappearing into it. It's just, it's just so beautiful. Like the way that it, you know, he just drifts away and the fact that it leaves it a mystery for us um, as an audience, because any answer, and this is what I always go back to with like mystery stories or, you know, fantastic stories or something like that is that any answer is going to be disappointing. So just leave it a mystery because it's, it's going to always be grand if it's just left a mystery. Um, And I love him still being the journalist as he's going in and he like waves his hand into the corn, you know, where he steps in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, best performance in the movie. Oh, let's just keep talking about him. James Earl Jones. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I really, I think I remember back to me at this time, you know, having, you know, my parents were really too old to be hippies. They kind of missed that. My dad's in the army, you know, my mom's in grad school. Like, they were not out participating in all that. But I remember as a kid being, like, fascinated by the 60s and just fascinated by the counterculture. And it hit me again watching this, you know, I love, like, the rants that Terrence goes on. Especially when he, when Kevin Costner first comes to his house and it's just like, you know, I don't have the answers, just get out of here, you know, and, and really watching this processing of the sixties that now being a, a you know, middle-aged person, I can appreciate that people would be trying to work on what it all meant when now we live in the 1980s and this is mm-hmm. what the world looks like. And so and I enjoyed that he lies to Ray at other times, that he's just kind of, you know, that he was somehow looking for an adventure, too. I also love the idea that his character has a dad who's worried about him. <laughs> like, James Earl Jones is super old. That's so funny. You? Um, yeah, James Earl Jones, definitely. Uh, you know, mainly, like, because of, like, the whole Darth Vader stuff. And I would have probably also seen him in Doctor Strange Love, you know, in high school or something. But, um... But you never think of James Earl Jones as an actor. He's just always like a voice. You know, whenever I think of The Lion King or Coming to America, like I don't think about his acting. I think about the fact that he was cast for this booming voice of his, you know, Darth Vader, same thing. And so to see him actually get stuff to do in this movie, is it's, it's neat. It's neat to actually see him embody a role. Like, you could have cast James Earl Jones as the voice in this movie and probably gotten away with it. But the fact that he's a character, it just feels great to see him do something else. I agree with you. He's just so good. I have an honorable mention, which is Amy Amy Madigan would be my honorable mention. Yes. And the reason that I say that is because it's like she takes nothing in the plot seriously. That doesn't mean that she doesn't have serious moments because she does have serious moments. But when I say that the movie's like a dream, mm-hmm. like her reaction to a lot of this stuff is like a dreamlike reaction where you're like yeah. any normal person would say, what are you talking about plowing down the cornfield? Like, and oh, she's crap. like, yeah, sure. Yeah. She's very yes. Yeah. She's very yes. And in this, yes. which makes it, it just makes it fun. So. When she at the PTA meeting with the book party stuff, so good. Evidently, you know, you can tell I got into some uh, trivia facts about this movie because they filmed in Iowa. Like you can oh, okay. still go to the field and go visit it. 
right. if you would like to. Mm-hmm. And they're like living in this town and, and like the bartender at the local bar thought she was so funny. He's like, you know, he tried to hire her as a bartender, like didn't know she was an actress because she's right. just like, so just again, like I imagine that's kind of how Amy Madigan is, you know, that, that I think her role and then, and then Gabby Hoffman's role is Karen. I really feel like Karen is, is really us in the movie. Like she's yeah. our way in to the movie because she's going to ask the questions because the rest of us are like, what the hell's going on? Leave it to the seven-year-old. She'll ask the question for you. You know, you don't right. see the baseball man. Like, what's your problem? Like, so I thought the two of them were a nice balance. I've got some stats about the movie. Stats, 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 stats. Uh, this movie opened on April 21st, 1989. April 21st? Mm-hmm. What kind of release is an April 21st release? It's baseball season. Not a summer movie. Yeah. Baseball season. Baseball season. Baseball season. Yeah, there we go. Uh, had a domestic gross of $64 million, which is under what I would have thought. I would have thought this was a $100 million movie, but it was not. Hmm. Uh, it was the number 19 grossing movie of 1989. Okay. It is the number 1,302nd top grossing movie of all time. Between, and here comes your triple feature, should you want to watch these three movies in a row. So, Field of Dreams comes between The Wedding Ringer, not The Wedding Singer, The Wedding Ringer, which is a Kevin Hart, Josh Gad vehicle from 2015, and Miracle, which is the story of the U.S. hockey team. So, you can go Kevin Hart to Field of Dreams to Miracle. As your triple feature. Yeah, the the wedding ringer is a bit the outlier. Kind of stands that. out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean <laughs> the other two are sporty, miracle-y movies. That's right. Okay, well. It has an eighty-six percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. R- Roger Ebert says Field of Dreams will not appeal to Grinches and Grouches and Realists. It is a delicate movie. A fragile construction of one goofy fantasy after another, but it has the courage to be about exactly what it promises. Four out of four stars. Four out of four stars. I mean, if he doesn't have his Grinch pants on, Raj is liking these kind of movies. I could see Raj going for this because it's like, if you don't take yourself seriously, you're going to have a good time at the movies. And I think that he, you know, he goes for that. Yeah. No Pauline Kale review. Mm. how did it do at the oscars it did not win a single oscar so sad nominated for for? it was nominated for two other oscars besides best picture would you like to guess what it was nominated for costumes not costumes sorry sorry who were you thinking for costumes dot graham yeah oh the baseball players yeah baseball players and this and that and kind of Kevin Costner's jeans. Maybe that's really what I was jeans. thinking about. His um, Berkeley t-shirt. His pattern button downs. Um, score? Yes. Best score, James Horner. Uh, it was a really good score. When it, it first really started, good. I was like, oh, I know this. I know this music. Yeah. So, okay. So we've got score and best picture. And there's one other one. There's one other one. And it's a classic. And you've kind of, you've kind of hinted around it. Oh, And oh, it's one that you play. always say. Yep. <laughs> Adapted screenplay. How many people are nominated for adapted screenplay? Nominated for best adapted screenplay. Well, I think that is when you though that's an Academy choice. 
typically. If you're nominated for Best Picture, you're going to get one of the screenplay nominations too. Yeah. If you've if you're enough to get into that group of five, then you're going to yeah. get. Generally speaking, Ray. People will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway, not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children, longing for the past. Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. For it is money they have, and peace they like. Ray, just sign the papers. And they'll walk out to the bleachers. Sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon. They'll find they have reserved seats somewhere along one of the baselines. Where they sat when they were children and cheered their heroes. And they'll watch the game. And it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick that I'll have to brush them away from their faces. Ray, when the bank opens in the morning, they'll foreclose. People will come, Ray. You're broke, Ray. You sell now or you lose everything. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. What is the legacy of this movie? Here's what I wrote. Nostalgia. This is a good time to talk about the way nostalgia works mm-hmm. in movies and pop culture because this very much lives in this world of nostalgia, whether it's baseball and the role that baseball plays. We've seen how this has really affected our pop culture 30 years on from 1989. Mm-hmm. So that, for instance, you know, we were talking about was this movie a hit or not? It made $64 million. Driving Miss Daisy made over $100 million. That was the last movie we talked about. Those are original ideas. Those are original properties. Of the top 10 movies that came out last year, all of them were either parts of a cinematic universe, so not necessarily sequels, but were IP that lived in the Avengers world or the Star Wars world or something like that. Right. Or they were sequels or they were remakes like The Lion King or Aladdin or something. Right. So of the top 10 movies of 2019, all of them were in some way unoriginal ideas. And I feel like that's that's kind of the world that we're in now. We're in the world where the hit movie is the one that can push all the right nostalgia buttons for people. And I think this movie does a good job of communicating why nostalgia would be desirable. It's dreamlike. Yeah, there's something that you long for that's not really real, 
just like you were saying about Shoeless Joe Jackson mm-hmm. and this Ray Liotta in this movie. He doesn't feel like a real person, yeah. but he feels like a nostalgic recreation of what you would want Shoeless Joe Jackson to be. Yeah. And there's a lot of that. Well, and it's this, you know, if we're looking at themes, it's this processing back of another time. But through the kind of, well, am I still authentically me? That element of, of am I still authentically myself? Yeah. And I think that is that is a universal question that that people in midlife ask themselves. The ideals I had when I was younger, the voice I was experiencing in myself when I was younger, is that still a voice that is real? Yeah. Now? Or have I so distanced myself from that person that I'm not myself anymore? And that that was something that I connected to in Ray's story that I d- probably did not connect to because I was living the voice when I was mm-hmm. 15, you know, that I was, I was living my voice then. And now it's like, well, am I, how am mm-hmm. I authentically that person from my youth? Yeah. The way they talk about the sixties in this movie and the way it's kind of like this vaunted time, mm-hmm. like Amy Madigan asks the woman at the town hall meeting, like, did you experience the sixties or something like that? Right. She's like, oh, I experienced the 60s. It's like, right. Like, like it was, yeah, like it was something. And we talked a bit about this with Born on the Fourth of July, this idea of remembering and how when you remember, maybe you leave out some pieces, maybe you round off some pieces, maybe, you know, I guess what I would say is that like uh, a modern day equivalent is that the 90s were not like the show Friends. But that's what we think the 90s were when we look yeah. back on the 90s now. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. It's that kind of thing. So that's not the reality, but that is like the fantasy of it. It can be a double-edged sword. We've talked about this on Popping Collars before, where it's like, yeah, maybe there's there are some lessons that can be gleaned from looking back on a time that you did feel in control or feel empowered or that you ha- you were living your voice or whatever that was. But there can also be a regressiveness to constantly looking back rather than, as Yoda would say, keeping your mind on where you are. Yes. What well, you are doing. <laughs> I did find it interesting, too, to have the Terrence Mann character be black because there were several moments in this movie where I was like, what about race? Yeah. Like we were really talking about cultural movement, but we're still really talking about it from a very white perspective. Yeah. You know, you want to talk well, about when you're in Iowa, <laughs> you're in Iowa. You're talking about a time in baseball when no players were black. Right. You know, no black players show up at the field of dreams either. Yeah. And it's still very much a, it's a white male story. Mm-hmm. This story. I will say that if you're going to tell a nostalgia story, baseball's a good vehicle for it. Here's what baseball does. It leans on storytelling as a sport. I don't know that I don't know that you can tell as many stories about the National Football League that you can about baseball. And I think the reason for that is because there's an inherent drama to the game. So you're you're from DC, so you know this. You experienced this last year. There's this there's this thing that happens when baseball is played really well and for really high stakes that all of a sudden every at bat becomes like a a lifetime, mm-hmm. um, and you're hanging on every pitch. And it's it's just that you know that lack of a clock, and it's just that that person versus person kind of feel to it that makes it really 
dramatic and you can see how like big fish stories come out of moments like that where it's like and then babe ruth pointed his bat at center field and he hit it exactly where he said he you know like it's so it's it so builds you up into that kind of place that yeah you're gonna start to lay it on thick um when you retell it and they confront that with the moonlight graham story line Mm -hmm. right when we've got the classic actor tandem of Burt Lancaster yeah. and Frank Whaley. Guys, <laughs> it does not get better than this. So good. And that, because he only got that one bat, and then all he gets on the field of dreams is one bat, right. and that it's enough, and then he can come rescue Karen from her hot dog choking. That, that kind of buildup of a moment and I, yeah, I think you're right. Baseball lends itself better. That's much more episodic. Yeah, just much more in that zone. Just in the just in the nature of the game. I would say that my number two sport to that would probably be basketball. Does that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then maybe football. Put it up. <laughs> just doesn't do it. You're right. In the same way, it just doesn't do it. Yeah, it's just uh, yeah, it just doesn't. It can't. It's like you can't hold the narrative long enough, you know, like, um, I mean, maybe there are some touchdowns that stand out or, you know, sort of like split second moments that kind of stand out in your memory, but nothing like Kirk Gibson hitting the home run in the 88 World Series and like limping around the bases because he couldn't hardly stand. It's like things like that are, I don't know, they're just timeless. Classic going on. 30 question and a classic going on 30 answer is about to come our way. I imagine who is this movie for? All right. I wrote out something very detailed. Oh, good. That this is for this movie is for baby boomers with daddy issues and poor accounting (laughs) abilities. They can't. I don't think there was Excel. They can't read a spreadsheet. So they're making poor financial choices while working out their daddy stuff. There we go. It's uh, that that first that first scene where Amy Madigan says, "We'll just barely not break even." It's like, okay, <laughs> you guys have made a, a horrible mistake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that they didn't fully invest in like the chorus of people watching him plow under the field. That it's just these random voiceovers like. Like, like, this is Iowa. Why do they sound like that? But, the, you know, what's he doing? He's nuts. Your answer is so much better than my answer. They'll what probably just let it stay. I, I just said middle-aged boomers because, yeah, yeah I was very much in this, yeah. like... Daddy issues. I was that. I was with your uh, with your daughter on the, on the whole uh, midlife crisis thing. Midlife crisis. She did think the cutest actor in the movie was the guy who played... Ray Liotta's dad. Ray Kinsella's dad. Ray Kinsella's dad, yes. Yes, Ray Kinsella's father. Who you thought was who? Who did you think it was? Tell our listeners. That was Bill Pullman. I've lived my entire life thinking that that was Bill Pullman. A young Bill Pullman. Nope. Dwyer Brown. Dwyer Brown. Crazy. Good night, Ray. Good night, John. Dad? 
catch? I'd like that. Well, Bill Pullman would have been great in this role. He would have been. So. He was busy. He is, he was coming off his big push from the accidental tourist. I'm sure he was off doing all sorts of wonderful things. That's right. What is your rating for this movie out of five? Will this be your first five star? It is movie? not going to be my first <laughs> star. I'm giving it a three and a half. Okay. I'm continuing with my decimal points. Okay. What's your uh, justification for the three and a half? Um, I mean, it just feels... It feels I'm looking at kind of how I've ranked other things. It yeah. has a bit of an abyss vibe to me, but I really like there's something about the abyss that really jive with me too because I like the action and the science parts of it too. Uh, you know, it's 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 better than average. There you, you go. Know? Yeah. What about you? I gave it a three out of five. Here is my justification. It's a strange movie, but if the script is supposed to feel like a nostalgic dream then it hits the mark perfectly. It's straight down the middle entertainment with no deep messages or meanings, just pure emotional cheese. Yes. <laughs> I well, mean, that's what, just... what I was saying earlier. I don't know why. I started crying very soon into this yeah. movie. I don't know why. My kid's looking at me like I'm nuts. I'm like, what are you crying about? Like, something's happening right now. And it's just, I don't know. It really is a feeler's dream, this movie. Lots, yeah. of, lots of the feels. And of course... Mm-hmm. That's why the Oscars, they nominated it. They like the Probably. Yeah. yeah. So that was my next question. Why yeah. did the Academy nominate this? Feels. For the feels. <laughs> feels. Loving the feels. Uh, I agree. I, you know, there seems to be like a... I'm starting to come up with a theory about the Academy based on the movies that we've been watching. I think the Academy, they nominate movies based on their endings. Because every movie that we've seen just about has had some kind of emotional ending or incredible climactic ending that the Academy has nominated. Now, I wouldn't say that of The Abyss, but The Abyss was my nomination, not The Academy's. But even The Accidental Tourist, which was a terrible movie, it had a schmaltzy ending that I kind of think that that's what the Academy bases their decisions on. Did you have well, a good ending? I also think that they can, they they use the feels as an excuse to not make riskier statement choices. Mm-hmm. So they can, they use emotion as the excuse to nominate these other movies, but not nominate Do the Right Thing. Yeah. Because the feels that Do the Right Thing gives you, gives you is more ambiguous and questioning. And I don't know what's going on, you know, like that confusion. sort of thing. Yeah, confusion, yes. frustration. So, but, but I feel like the feels is kind of an out. Mm-hmm. It's like a card they play to be like, oh, but this is okay because it gives us the feels. Right. Born on the 4th of July has an upswing at the end. Driving Miss Daisy, obviously. Feeding the pie. And this, and then our next movie, which was not nominated by the Academy, oh. we have finally gotten to a Betsy's pick. You have chosen Glory. Glory chosen will Glory. be our next movie, okay. and I'll be fascinated next time to hear why you picked Glory. I'm looking forward to it. I think I've only ever seen it once before, 
And that was like a long time ago. So I don't I've really re- remember. I've rewatched. I've rewatched. Not like I've pulled out that DVD in the last 15 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's it would be one of those back when we used to. You remember back, Greg, when we used to like watch TV? Like and whatever was on and we'd watch it. And it's like a Sunday afternoon or Saturday afternoon. And you're like home. Maybe in your 20s. Maybe you stayed out too late the night before with your friends. And you're just laying on the couch. You're flipping around, flipping around, right? Eating some cold mm-hmm. pizza and like, boom! There's Gloria. I'm watching it. Betsy, thank you for walking into the cornfield <laughs> with me. I'm glad to be walking with you as well. Well, 